Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. And whatever you've got planned for this hour, clear your uh, schedule because we're going to have a wonderful hour uh, on the words of Jesus. And my guest is Anna Rask Emerson. She is a full-time instructor here at the University of Northwestern. She's in her Ph.D. program. And I had her on before and I learned so much. And now today we've got her back. And she was nice enough to not only come be on the show again, but she brought her home husband and they just got married 11 months ago Anna, welcome hi thank you I'm glad would you to like be to here. introduce uh... this is john uh husband john uh, yeah like you said we've been married for 11 months and he's a northwesterner too and i thought he could just pop in for today he has a background in radio too so wanted to bring him in for uh for a little bit today you know, they said I wouldn't be talking at all. Uh, <laughs> I the know. second I mentioned radio, here I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you were a manager of a radio station in Belize? Yeah. 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 And you met Dan Winea from Northwestern here. So way back way in Way back day. in, yeah. So this is a great, it's a great story. And I love God's faithfulness as you just get married. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're newlyweds, right? Yes. And you buy a house. Yes. And then what could possibly go wrong with a, a new house? A like lot. Nothing. Oh, what? <laughs> A few things broke this year. But. Okay, just 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 give just give me one for example. The big one was our our heating and AC uh, that that's all nothing. went out. What yeah. is that? Four hundred bucks? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> we got a nice little payment plan there. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly enough, John, that week was also a fun week for you with your car. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, no, it was her car as well. Oh, it was Anna's car. Yeah. Transmission went out, so all of a sudden done. Pricey it was... week. <laughs> That's an expensive week. It is. Painful week, but through the week, like, just kept saying God's going to provide. And by the end of the week, we both had, uh, what I guess, pay bumps. Yeah. And pay bumps. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, God the provided God... within seven days. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay. Well, uh, John, thank you for coming on. And we won't talk to you again. <laughs> because, because it's Anna. It's Anna's hour, right? We've got a lot to cover. And we have a lot to cover. Yeah. So, Anne, I know um, we're going to start with uh, Samaritan Woman, I believe. Yeah, I'm going to provide a little bit of context to, uh, Lord willing, four different passages. So I taught a course this year called Women in the Bible at Northwestern, and I wanted to share today some of my research from uh, my studies and what I taught my class. So there are four passages uh, I'd like to look at. The Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus being anointed by a sinful woman, and then Jesus dining at the home of Mary and Martha, and then this final passage where Jesus describes who is his family. And I want to provide more of the background and context so that we can understand why Jesus' statements and actions were revolutionary. And a lot of this research is coming from a book called Man and Woman in a Biblical Perspective. It was written by James Hurley, published in 1981, but I have found it so helpful in terms of uh, its content about the ancient world, how women were treated in multiple cultures. So Assyria, Babylon, Israelite culture, Judaism, then Greece and Rome. So I'm excited to provide some background and just kind of walk us through it. So uh, 
In Jesus' teachings and actions, he called the people of his day and in turn us today to think differently. And in general, the Jews of Jesus' day were looking for a political and military Messiah to free them from Roman oppression. But Jesus didn't really fit into their box of messianic expectations, and he knew it. It was Jesus' teachings and in time the teachings of his apostles that were countercultural. Jesus' teachings represented a break from the standard Judaism of his day. And so the aspect I want to touch on today is how his ministry established new roles for women in the life and worship of the people of God, roles that are actually more similar to the Old Testament than first century Judaism. So in order to kind of construct the background uh, of first century Judaism, we're going to go and look at some sources from around this time. And there's a variety of sources, but I'm going to give a broad definition of two of them. It's called the Mishnah and then the Talmud. And just a brief definition, the Mishnah is the first major work of rabbinic literature consisting of teachings transmitted over hundreds of years and compiled around 200 A.D., It covers agricultural, ritual, civil, criminal, temple-related laws, and presents a variety of legal opinions in it. Uh, The Talmud is then a textual record of generations of rabbinic debate about law, philosophy, and biblical interpretation. And that one was compiled between the 3rd and 8th centuries A.D., So we're looking at about uh, two sources that are compiled about between two and eight centuries after Christ. And it is difficult to discern which traditions in these works date from the time of Jesus. But what scholars have done is cross-check the attitudes and perspectives presented in the Talmud and Mishnah and compared them with earlier datable materials, such as the apocryphal books, the writings of Philo, Josephus, and the New Testament. And I'll just say caution is needed here because the perspectives that are common in the apocryphal books, which is books written from about 200 B.C. to 400 A.D. So the perspectives in the apocrypha, along with the New Testament and writings contemporary with it and the Talmud, uh, seem to have been generally present among Jesus contemporaries. But we need to be careful with materials that can't be so easily traced. So I'm going to point us to one of the earliest intertestamental statements on women. And it comes from the apocryphal book called Wisdom of Jesus Ben Sirach. It's often commonly referred to as Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus. And this book is generally understood to have been written about 190 BC, so before Christ. And in this work, and actually throughout Jewish literature, there is high praise for a virtuous wife and condemnation for a faithless one. Ben Sirach writes, quote, the woman makes the man. And in chapter 26, he says, happy the husband of a really good wife. The number of his days will be doubled. A perfect wife is the joy of her husband. He will live out the years of his life in peace. A good wife is the best of portions reserved for those who fear the Lord. But as he then describes a bad wife, it's quite intense and just be ready for it. He says, any spite rather than the spite of woman. I would sooner keep house with a lion or a dragon than keep house with a spiteful woman. No wickedness comes anywhere near the wickedness of a woman. May a sinner's lot be hers. Low spirits, gloomy face, stricken heart. Such are the achievements of a spiteful wife. Sin began with a woman, and thanks to her, we must all die. Don't let her let water find a leak. 
Don't allow a spiteful woman free reign of her tongue. For she will not do as you tell her. If she will not do as you tell her, get rid of her. A very strong passage about... And thank you for not asking me to read that. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) A very strong passage. And I I just want to note of what he evaluates regarding the source of humanity's fall. He says, sin began with the woman, whereas the biblical account views Adam as complicit in in the act of sin as well. So that is our one of our earliest statements. Uh, we also hear from people like Philo and Josephus. These were contemporaries of the Apostle Paul, and they provide two samples of Jewish attitudes towards women in general at the time of Christ. Philo's writing from Egypt. He's being very influenced by Greek thought, whereas Josephus wanted to justify Jewish ways to a Roman audience. So we want to be careful and be cautious of viewing their perspectives as typical of Judaism in all of Palestine. But their views still, in general, align with Ben Sirach and later Jewish rabbis and Pharisees. Um, so the fact that their perspectives find simil- have similarities with other authors makes it likely that their perspectives were not atypical. What we see in Philo and Josephus is that they seem to presume intrinsic female inferiority, which was not found in Ben Sirach's writing, and most importantly, not found in the Old Testament. Just to remind ourselves, Genesis 1.27 says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And when describing the difference between men and women, we hear Philo says, Quote, the attitude of man is informed by reason, that of women by sensuality, end quote. Clearly, he's saying, though a female is the less rational sex, which from his perspective is a flaw. Uh, the Talmud is even more explicit in its teaching of women's inferiority, and its general attitude is reflected in its frequent classification of women with children and Gentile slaves. And so it's this generally low rabbinical view of women that resulted in them being used frequently as examples of undesirable traits. There's a, there was a fear of sexual impropriety that led to a general policy of simply avoiding women. The rabbis, too, assumed women to be incapable of learning religious things. And some rabbis even forbid teaching and instructing women in religious matters. And then we get to Jesus, and he really flips the script. So if I can now bring us to John 4, this is the account of the Samaritan woman at the well. That would be great, because I'm losing listeners fast. No, you're fine, you're fine. (laughs) Um, This is providing the background. And uh, in John 4, we hear that the rabbis of uh, the day, I'm, I'm sorry, the perspective of the rabbis of the day would have viewed this woman as having three points against her. She is a Samaritan. She's a woman and she's immoral. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, the rabbi, should not have been talking to her. And just as a little bit of background, again, the Samaritans were a people group that were in north central Israel who developed a mostly separate identity after the Assyrian conquest in the 8th century. And so the Assyrians practice was to, in essence, deport people from their homeland and then put other people that they've taken from other parts of their empire and put them in the vacated territory. And so the the Samaritans were ethnically a development of Jews who had been left around Samaria, the capital of the northern nation of Israel, and then foreigners that had been, in essence, dropped off. So their ethnicity was a mixed ethnicity, and so to their religion. Uh, Because there was Judaism there, it was the Torah 
and Jewish thought, but it was mixed with other religions, and there was changes. For example, the Samaritan Temple is Mount Gerizim, not on Jerusalem, uh, not in Jerusalem. So we hear this history of animosity for those couple reasons, ethnicity, but also religious reasons. We hear this animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews in the New Testament. But in terms of this woman not simply being a Samaritan, she's also a woman. And Jesus' encounter with her is a good example of his willingness to dismiss conventions of men that opposed his purpose. As I briefly mentioned prior to that, uh, we see that um, this post-Old Testament era was very concerned about sexual temptation, and they wanted to reduce contact between the sexes. So it's fascinating that Jesus takes a step to actually go and talk to her. Oh, fantastic. Anna Rask Emerson is my guest. We are in our Red uh, series uh, with the words of Jesus, and we are uh, going to take a short break and be right back with Anna. Podcasts like mine are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. So glad to have Anna Rask Emerson in studio with her good-looking husband, John. And uh, just 11 months married. So it's awesome. And we're talking about uh, the words of Jesus. And right now we're talking about the Samaritan woman. And Anna, this is, uh, you're doing a great job. So let's continue. So before the break, I was mentioning that there was, uh, within the post-Old Testament era, within Judaism, a concern about sexual temptation. And the approach in rabbinic Judaism was to keep contact between the sexes to a minimum. The Mishnah reports actually from a rabbi named Jose Ben Yohanan. He says, quote, talk not much with women. And actually in wealthier places too, women were expected to stay indoors. Philo expressed his opinion that all public life with its discussions and deeds is proper for women. It's suitable for women to live indoors and live in retirement. Uh, in essence, I mean, wealthier places women could do that uh, in Places with lower socioeconomic means could not. They would have to, I mean, provide for and help provide for their families. But this seclusion of women helped ease fears of husbands and fathers if their daughters just simply stayed inside. So it's surprising that Jesus, a single Jewish man and a rabbi, was alone with the Samaritan woman at the well. And we see that he initiated a conversation with her with the purpose of bringing her the good news of the kingdom. And she's actually surprised by his request for water. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? But we see that it seems Jesus didn't care about the attitudes or opinion of the day. He simply wanted to talk to her. Even his disciples are surprised to find him alone talking with a woman. And we see Jesus' conversation with her shows his concern to communicate about himself and about the kingdom. We see that she didn't understand everything they talked about, but she does emerge at the end of the account as a sharp person who is responsive to his message. There's no suggestion that her sex affected the manner of Jesus dealing with her. 
It's interesting to note the contrast between the response of the Samaritan woman and the response of Nicodemus, the male Pharisee in the chapter preceding, chapter 3 of John. This wise ruler comes to Jesus at night to avoid being seen. He's confused because his expectations of the Messiah and the kingdom don't match what Jesus, what Jesus taught. And yet this nameless Samaritan woman heard not only about the kingdom, but even the uncovering of her own sin and responded in faith. I think it's interesting that their conversation is in daylight, which I think parallels the bringing of her sin to light. Mm. And she, unlike Nicodemus, and it seems Nicodemus did come to faith later on, but she made no effort to keep uh, their relationship, or I mean, her relation or time with Jesus a secret. She announced to everyone in her life that she that he knew all that she had done. So a really powerful passage that says he's willing to cross those barriers and those opinions of the day to go speak to someone who is different ethnicity and different gender and that didn't matter he simply wanted to tell her the good news of the gospel and and i love that in that course of that conversation she referred to him in four different ways Mm. started by calling him jew Mm -hmm. and then sir and then prophet (laughs) and at the end messiah yeah that's quite a that's quite a a distance to travel in one conversation absolutely she comes to in essence a confession of faith yeah yeah it's fantastic The next text I want to look at is when Jesus was anointed by the sinful woman. This is in Luke chapter 7. And I've been noting some common thoughts in rabbinical literature. And in that literature, women are almost never used to exemplify trust or God or in God or theological insight. But the Gospels are different. In Luke 7, we hear about an event being held at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And then a repentant woman who had been a sinner enters the dinner and anoints Jesus' feet. It seems Simon would have never permitted such a person to touch him, but Jesus uses her as an example of faith and love. And her faith and devotion puts the Pharisee, Simon, to shame. And it shows his lack of trust and love for Jesus. He didn't even perform the basic acts of hospitality for his guest. And yet the sinful woman's faith led her to acts of love and gratitude. It's she, not the Pharisee, who exemplifies godly action, godly faith in action. And I want to make this seem, might seem a little off topic here, but I want to make a note about her hair. Uh, I point this out to my students. Uh, if I can just read a brief portion of it, it says a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there and she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. She knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Now, Research in the Old Testament does not have requ- does not reveal a requirement for women to be veiled like a facial veil or a head covering, but it does presume it seems to presume that women's hair will be put up. Uh, hair worn down and loose was a sign of separation amongst the Hebrews. It was a sign of mourning or having leprosy or a commitment to a Nazarite vow or when someone is accused of adultery re- and repentance. All of those Uh, Times are viewed and called for such a hairstyle of hair worn down. And among Jews, Greeks, and Romans, loose hair worn down was a sign of distress and not a hairdo to be worn by adult women. Women of all three societies put their hair up and decorated it in various, sometimes expensive ways. Their hair done up was a sign of their dignity and their honor. And I remember teaching this to my 
students and then we read this passage and I literally had some students have their jaws drop because when they read the passage, we all went, her hair. <laughs> it doesn't say she took her hair down. I know we're presuming some things, but all it says is she she wiped the tears off with her hair. It doesn't say she took her hair down. It seems to suggest her hair was already down, which I think is signaling her life as a sinful, immoral woman, as she described, and repenting of that behavior. And we see that Jesus welcomes her and her repentance. And again, another example of Jesus dealing with individuals without reference to their sex. So another pivotal passage that shows, again, Jesus is not interested in conforming to the thoughts of his day. He welcomes anyone to come and repent. And speaking of labels, Anna, I mean, in the beginning of that passage isn't she referred to as as the immoral woman yes exactly it's like, well thank you yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> not the best and, title. and then when yeah. she enters i i'm sure everyone was you know starting to m- m- murmur a little bit mm-hmm. oh, look who just came in you know there was probably some of that absolutely as well. i think uh, i don't yeah. want to read into stuff that isn't there no, but no, no. i can only imagine what I, they were thinking i can uh, probably guess the same type of reaction it was probably shocking to have her come in and she's also touching him again we're trying to minimize this contact yeah. between the sexes all of her behavior i assume would have been quite shocking and the fact that he does not object to it is also something that is just quite notable and um she appears as the i mean the example not simon the pharisee mm-hmm. and when she comes in with this alabaster jar of perfume not to mention the value of the perfume right. but the jar was probably expensive too yeah yeah and she pours it all out and there's a couple different accounts of uh, a sinful woman um in in the gospels but it seems yeah she pours out all this perfume and then wipes it with her hair kissing his feet and uh it's an act of repentance towards uh, towards uh, her sin uh, and an act of acknowledging that Jesus has, the, in essence, the ability to forgive her for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a powerful moment, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. you, you uh, present and teach that well. I really, I really have enjoyed that. And when uh, Simon did not offer Jesus the hospitality, I just can't imagine... Um, that's really in your face moment, isn't it? Right. I think the the general hospitality is at least offering um, the ability to wash one's feet. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we don't see that he extended and, that offer and greet to with Jesus. A kiss, yeah, right? exactly. Anoint his head with oil, yeah, right? Yeah. None of that that he did he performed for Jesus. Yeah, he kicked all that to the curb when mm-hmm. he came to Jesus, being the host. I mean, a guest at his house of which he was hosting. Absolutely. And then she the sinful woman shame. shows yeah. up and does it all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a beautiful moment. Yeah. Anna Rask Emerson is my guest, and we are uh, talking about our Red Word series. Now, if you have a red letter edition Bible, it'd be the words of red in, in the uh, Gospels. And we're going to take a break and we come back. Uh, what do we got coming up next, Anna? We're going to look at when Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha. Ooh, that's going to be a great, yeah. <laughs> a great story. If you have any questions or comments or anything you'd like to add, my text line is always open just for you. 877 933 
are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Drive, drive, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arnold. If you just join me, welcome. Anna Rask Emerson is my guest. She's an instructor here at the University of Northwestern in Biblical and Theological Studies. And we're talking about uh, the words of Jesus. This is our, our uh, Red Word series. So if you have a red letter edition Bible, they would be the red words in that in that Bible. All right, Anna, let's move on to uh, Mary and Martha. Is that in Luke 10? Yes, Luke 10, 38 through 40. So we've been providing the context behind se- selected passages of what the significance of Jesus' conversations and encounters with specific women in the New Testament were. And in Luke 10, we're given a glimpse of Jesus as he teaches his disciples in the home of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And I want to quick provide a little bit of a background on the religious life of women. What was it like for them as Jewish women in the first century in terms of uh, worshiping God? Uh, The rabbis considered that the commands of Moses were generally applicable to women, and it was expected that women would live obedient, pious lives. And when the temple was standing, there were specific areas for women in the temple. Women were restricted, though, to either the court of Gentiles or the court of women. And they were not permitted to uh, go to the temple during their menstrual and postnatal times of ceremonial uncleanness. They could not enter the temple area at all. But the same restriction would apply to a man who had a bleeding or flowing open wound. Uh, He could not enter either. Now, in terms of the synagogues, uh, women had more freedom than worship at the temple. Synagogues are places of local prayer, worship, and study of scripture for the Jewish communities. And women were not required to regularly attend the synagogue, although they were allowed to come to any service and expected to come to some of them. From Philo, who we referenced earlier, and from archaeological remains, it seems that women were frequently, if not generally, seated in separate sections of the synagogue or even in the balcony. But their part in the service was strictly receptive. Women had a passive role in worship, given that in general... The rabbis did not think that they had the ability to learn, nor was it proper to teach them. The women were to hear the scripture and the exposition, but were not expected to learn or gain deep understanding. Synagogue instruction was designed for and only taught to men. Rabbis opposed women as teachers in in schools and even in homes, except when they were just teachers of their own children. Now note the contrast of how Jesus behaves. I'm just going to read verses 38 through 42. He says, the text says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to them, to him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So in Jesus opinion, Mary made the right choice in listening to him. Other things could wait. She should learn from the Lord while he was there. 
We find a similar respect and concern for women and their knowledge in other passages. In Luke 11, for instance, uh, Jesus carefully challenges and extends the faith of Mary and specifically Martha after their brother Lazarus died. Martha, who was initially too busy to listen, is brought to a confession of Jesus not Jesus not just as the Messiah, but as the source of the resurrection of the dead. And it seems Martha's growth is Jesus' goal, even as she mourns her brother. We see that Jesus' handling of these two women shows a sensitivity to their individual needs and reveals a conviction that their needs matter. Again, we see Jesus doesn't share the typical rabbinical and scribal attitudes of his day. His message was for sinful people of all sorts. In his ministry, he considered women important hearers and I would say learners of his word. Mm. So, you know, when Jesus was with the men teaching, Mm -hmm. I mean, he was holding court and a woman would not even be remotely welcome in that environment. In in general, yeah, I mean, the right? separation of the sexes. But when Jesus is doing ministry, and I can touch on this a little later, the shocking part is that women are there. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> women are there and are following along with him, not as the official 12 disciples, but they're present as he does his ministry. Yeah. But in a private home. Correct. For Mary to place herself at, at, his feet. at the feet yeah. of Jesus with all these other men, that was a very bold it was. statement that was saying, I'm here to be a learner. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there was some men that were going, what is she doing? What is here? she doing? Yeah. And, and Martha shows up and says, she's not helping me yeah. get things ready. And it seems like most people would probably say, oh, yeah, Mary, get there, get in there and help Martha. But Jesus takes a total opposite perspective and says, I want her to sit and listen and learn. That's the best choice right now. Yeah. Do you sometimes hear that story that that Martha was doing the work and Mary was the slacker? Because I don't see that at all. I see Mary as. Yeah. As the one who was very bold, putting herself in a position which could have been open to a lot of uh, persecution. You could maybe see that on the surface of like, oh, Mary needs to get in there and help. But I think from Jesus perspective, absolutely not. Martha should be sitting and listening, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So fascinating and i love that story uh so thank you for for sharing that what what's uh what's next yeah this is more just kind of a general statement about jesus and his ministry i'm going to read matthew 12 46 through 50 and it says as jesus was speaking to the crowd his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him someone told jesus your mother and brothers are standing outside they want to speak to you jesus asked who is my mother Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. And again, this is setting apart Jesus from the teachers of his day. Jesus' biological family had come to look for him. But now that he's begun his public ministry, Jesus' family relations are seen differently. His blood ties no longer take the same sort of precedence in his relationship to people. Jesus says that whoever does the will of his father is his mother, sister, and brother. This implies that women were in the crowd and that he apparently identified them as disciples in a general sense. The women and men could be his family. And so again, Jesus, unlike the rabbis, taught women and willingly received them as his followers. They were people for whom he had a message and were treated as such. He treated them 
as people and didn't discriminate based on sex. Beautifully inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just providing some, I can kind of wrap up our, our discussion here about this idea of this of women being a participate participants in Jesus' ministry. As we look at the rest of the Gospels, we see that one of the pieces of information unique to Luke's book is the description of Jesus' traveling companions. Looking at the beginning of chapter 8, we see that Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And his 12 disciples are there, but also some women who had been cured of evil spirits. We say Mary called Magdalene, uh, from whom seven demons have come out, Johanna, the wife of Chuza, and the manager of Herod's household, and then Susanna, and many others. And the text that I find fascinating is these women were helping to support them out of their own means. So Luke is not just giving us information about the crowd that gathered to hear Jesus, nor is he simply listing people who encountered him. These people are part of his close circle. These women seem to be linked with the 12 disciples as Jesus' companions. And Luke 8 says these women benefited from Jesus' ministry and contributed to it from their own funds. Now, it wasn't uncommon for a rabbi to have followers, but it was really unusual that the followers would be women. And people may be speculated about, oh, what role do these women have? But the text is clear. These women were supporting him from their, his own, from their own means and were listening to what he had to say. And we hear that even accounts of the crucifixion and the resurrection give us more information about these women. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, are watching the resurrection. Salome, mother of the sons of Zebedee, are also mentioned. And these were the women, Mark says, who followed Jesus and cared for his needs. So this tells us more about their active role in Jesus' ministry, and it does parallel the role of the disciples in that they listened and ministered to Jesus' needs. And we learn that even they, they helped out after the crucifixion. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, watched him being placed in the tomb, and they returned after the Sabbath to anoint his body, and they became the first witnesses to the resurrection. And recent scholars point to this, and they say this is ironic, given that Jewish law prohibits women from acting as witnesses— and yet it was women who were the first witnesses of the resurrection. But what they had to say initially did not impress the disciples. Luke says that the disciples didn't believe the women. They thought their words were nonsense. And yet then the message spread and the disciples came to see for themselves. So it's these same women who were present with Jesus at during his travels and at his death that were also presumably the ones upon the, whom the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost as well. So the presence of these women within this close circle of Jesus who traveled with him and learned from him is a radical break with Jewish practice. Again, Jesus stands independent of his culture in relation to women. And apart from the 12 disciples who he set apart for a special purpose, Jesus seems to have made no distinction between classes of people and when he brought the good news of the arrival of the kingdom, men and women are welcome to receive this universal invitation of the kingdom of God through Christ. And we hear this echoed similarly in Paul's proclamation in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Mm. 
Anna Rask, uh, Emerson, thank you uh, for that. I mean, when I uh, a couple of comments I'd love I'd love to make these women supporting Jesus in his ministry, providing from their own provision. Yeah, I think one person in that lineup of names might have come from some resources. But do you have any idea what the other women were doing to generate income of which they were using to fund Jesus's ministry? I mean, they might have been wealthy as a result of their marriages or something and had some extra income. But it seems they gave of their food and their money to help provide for Jesus, who's essentially this homeless itinerant preacher and maybe doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. So whatever means or income they did have, I mean, we hear about other women in the New Testament like I mean, Lydia didn't interact with Jesus, but she's a seller of purple cloth. So, Mm -hmm, I mean, whatever they are participating in for employment, they're giving out of that, out of their own means to help support someone whose cause and him that they believe in. Mm -hmm. And was the world's first evangelist a woman? (laughs) Potentially. It kind of looks that way, doesn't it? They go and tell the good news. They go. And they're not believed. Yeah. But they're the first ones. Uh, Essentially, yeah. Don't you love that uh, perspective that Jesus would would have Mary be that first messenger. And I think it's incredibly ironic, too, because when people say that, oh, the resurrection didn't happen, you would want to make it as credible as you could. (laughs) And the fact that women were the first ones telling it, uh, telling that Jesus had risen, doesn't start off in their culture with a vow of credibility. Mm -hmm. And so that, to me, makes it all the more... Uh, believable that they just told it as it is. And yeah. yes, he is arisen from the dead. It's like the shepherds in the field yeah. when Jesus is born. Unlikely it's people. just so unlikely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just mm-hmm. makes you love Jesus more and Absolutely. more and more, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for enlarging my heart with that information. <laughs> We're going to take a little break. We'll be back with more with Anna Rask Emerson. Uh, we are in our Red Word series. If you have a question or comment, my text line is open just for you. 877 933 Again, 877-933-2484. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. We've had a pretty busy hour, so if you missed any of it, you're going to want to go back, go to the podcast, check out MyFaithRadio.com. Believe it or not, they've given me my own show page, Afternoons with Bill, and you can go and find the podcast. Anna Rask Emerson is my guest, and we're in our Red Word series. So if you have a Red Letter Edition Bible, you would open it up and you'd say, all this red ink, and you go, huh, wonder who's talking in the red ink. That is the words of Jesus. So we want to focus on those words. And what we've covered this hour is we started with the Samaritan woman at the well in Luke 4. And then we talked about the anointing by a sinful woman when Jesus was at the home of Simon, the Pharisee. And that's in Luke chapter 7. And then we went to Jesus dining at the home of Mary and Martha. And that's in Luke chapter 10. And then uh, Jesus revealing who really is his family. And we just covered that in Matthew 12. And that's a very warm, embracing comment that Jesus makes. Whoever does my will is my father, mother, and sister. And and that is, again, a great reminder 
how inclusive the family of God is. And when you place your faith in Christ, you are definitely part of his family. Absolutely. And there's even a a passage in the Gospels that talks about uh, a woman called a daughter of Abraham. And this title of being a, a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, was so important to the Jewish people, being able to tie your ancestry back to Abraham. But now this woman is also called a daughter of Abraham because of her faith. But it's this idea of it's less about your background and your ethnicity, it is about your faith. And those are the people that Jesus says are a part of his family, those who actually hear the will of God and do the will of God. And so it really is a very open, inclusive message to all who want to believe. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can start uh, covering some thoughts, some conclusions, some um, a few things to leave you a with. Few things, yeah. yeah, I love that. What, what's yeah. ever in the brown paper bag they can take home. I would just say the most striking thing about the role of women in the life and teaching ministry of Jesus is the simple fact that they're there. That in itself is just is revolutionary, that they join him in his ministry. He teaches them. He crosses cultural and uh, geographic barriers to go out of his way. I didn't mention that with the Samaritan woman, but there is a different road most Jews would take to avoid Samaria. Yeah, true. He goes straight through. <laughs> so he doesn't let that bother him. And So the fact that they're there is probably the most shocking thing. But these Gospels, uh, they the Gospels don't contain any special or specific sayings that go out of their way to renounce the views of the day about women. But their collective testimony to the presence of women amongst Jesus' followers and to his serious teaching of them, meaning he believes them capable of learning and he wants to teach them, that constitutes a break with tradition in first century Judaism. Jesus was the inaugurator of the kingdom of God, and we see that he preached his message to everyone. And I just gave you a selected few. I mean, we also see centurions coming to faith, other synagogue leaders, um, the Syrophoenician women. I mean, just all people are welcome. He, yes, goes to the Jews first, but we see that uh, the Jewish people, uh, we see some coming to faith. We see others that still continue to reject. And it's then after his death and resurrection that the disciples take it further. And Jesus says, go to, I mean, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. That means everyone is welcome to receive this message and to hear this message. So I would say that the foundation of Jesus' attitude towards women was his vision of them as people. And as people to whom he had come and for uh, and who he came for, he came for them. He came for everyone, not just men, but women as well. And I would say as he as we look at the ministry of Jesus, he didn't view women or men primarily in terms of their sex, age or marital status. He considered them in terms of their relationship with God or lack thereof. What did they need to learn about God? Jesus did not share the disdainful and condescending attitudes of so many of his contemporaries to those in need. This explains why Jesus was unaffected by the prejudices of his day towards the poor, the lepers, the Samaritans, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and yes, women in general. Everyone was and still today is in need of his message. So good. And Anna, you were talking about uh, Mary Magdalene being probably the first 
Evangelist. She leaves the tomb and goes and reports what she just saw, a risen Savior, right? Yeah. And I love that the revelation that Jesus makes, and we talked about this briefly during the break, in uh, John chapter 4, when he's in a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my favorite moments um, in Scripture when you um, look at the text and and she kind of with confidence uh, says that that this is all going to get sorted out. Um, she said, where um, I just had it and I lost it. Hang on just a minute. Um, in verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, yeah. he will explain everything to us. And then this moment, which I find just gives me goosebumps, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that moment? I mean, it's a it's a shocking revelation for her. Uh, I think many of the Gospels are just, especially Mark, really focuses on revealing Jesus' identity. Who is this guy? And I love that at times he really does just come out and say it. And he says, yep. That's me. We're going to sort it all out right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I love that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when they say, you know, Jesus says, who, who have you come for? And they right. say, Jesus of, of Nazareth. And they fall back. He said, I yeah. am he. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all mm-hmm. these trained SWAT team soldiers collapse backwards yeah. and fall to the ground. Yeah, and sometimes when he invokes these I am statements, especially in the book of John, he's using the term... Uh, in Greek, though, of when uh, we hear God reveal himself first to Moses at the burning bush, this idea of Yahweh, I am who I am. So he's making that definitive definition, declaration that he is God. Mm-hmm. And that is what's so offensive to so many people. And you hear the high priest tearing his robes, blasphemy, associating himself as God. Now, Anna, when you look at the stories we talked about today, this Samaritan woman at the well, mm-hmm. the anointed by a sinful woman in Luke, and Jesus dining at the home of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, and Jesus revealing who really is his family in Matthew 12. If you were given an opportunity to give a devotion on one of these, which one would you gravitate to because you say, I like this one the best? Not that you're playing favorites with Scripture, because it's really not a great thing to do, but yeah, what would be your inclination? I'm torn between the sinful woman and uh, the Mary and Martha story. Uh, I think the sinful woman is especially just because... You see her heartfelt repentance and that she takes a a courageous step and that Jesus just has the biggest heart of compassion for her. We think about when he says that um, he didn't come from the for the healthy, he came for the sick, the Mm -hmm. people who need it. And she recognizes that she needed it. Uh, But at the same time, with the home of Mary and Martha, I'm just in awe and encouraged that. Uh, Jesus takes the time to teach women and I've committed my life to, to studying scripture and I'm grateful that I get the ability to do so. And it's just a reminder to put your priorities on spending that time with the Lord rather than getting distracted by the things of this world or all the responsibilities. I think there are many days I can be Martha and say, I have to get all this done. But really the important thing is to be learning at the feet of our Lord and to take that time to get to know him better, learn his teaching. He 
invited us to learn. I'm grateful that I get to play a role in that, to learn about him and learn from uh, uh, from his words. And so I really need to be making that a big priority in my life to sit at his feet every day and Amen. learn from him. And Anna, I love how intimate Jesus is, um, even when it comes to responding to Mary and Martha regarding the death of Lazarus. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's very blunt with Martha saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. And with Mary, he just wept. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So beautiful. It it is. It is. And he meets them where they are. We see this progression of faith with Martha, too, from being too busy to now coming to a confession of him as Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And just that he's sensitive to that. He cares about her mourning of her brother. But at the same time, he is trying to elicit faith and growth in her as well. Anna Rask, Emerson, thank you so much for coming on the program. And thanks for bringing your husband, John. (laughs) And, okay, you've been married 11 months. What what are you guys doing for dinner now? We're going to go out and get some food. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) making dinner right now. Her choice. Yeah, Yeah. we're going to go. You get to choose, Anna, huh? Yes, little date night, yeah. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And, John, uh, I appreciate you coming in. It's really nice to meet you. Yeah, no, long-time listener, and I could not be more proud of my wife. Thanks, honey. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. All right, that wraps up our show for the day. I have loved being with you today, and if you missed any of the show today, I always say go to the the the, uh, the website and check out the podcast. Maybe you have a friend who is in an addiction, and you think, well, that interview we had with George, that would be helpful. I can send them the link. You can do stuff like that. All day long. It's really, uh, really nice. And it's there for you to use and to enjoy. And to hopefully you can grow in your faith from the great teaching from people like Anna and everything you hear on the Faith Radio Network. Have a great night, everyone. Look forward to being with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.